0: Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is Nelson DeWitt and John Younger. And today we have a guest, Arturo Javier Viscara from the SOA Watch. And he's going to be talking about the SOA Watch as an organization and what they do, and also giving us an update about their recent. Protests or gathering that they that they do annually. So Arturo, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to join you. So since this is sort of a new topic for the podcast, we wanted to start with just asking you, what is the SOA, and then we'll get into what is the SOA watch and what is the work that you do there. So if you could just give everyone a brief overview of what the SOA is and why it's important that you've established the SOA watch.
1: Well, the SOA is the School of the Americas, which is a military training institute established by the US in, it was 1944, but right right at the beginning of the Cold War. And it is specifically was made to train Latin American soldiers by the US. And it was, you know, from the beginning kind of conceptualized as a anti-communist Anti-insurgency kind of uh, training institute. It was originally it was established in the Panama Canal Zone, but after some time, Panama no longer wanted it to be in its territory, so they, you know, the just resisted having it continue to be there. So in 1984, it was moved to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is in Columbus, Georgia. Fort Benning is a big military base there, and. You know, the, the SOA has become notorious due to the quantity of graduates who, after being trained at the SOA, went on to commit, gross human rights violations and or just, you know, be, were being in charge of the coup d'etats and, and dictatorships afterwards. So, for example, we have Hugo Banzer from Bolivia, a lot of the Chileans that came to power after the 1973 coup, a lot of the Argentines that came into power after the 1976 coup there. The Guatemalans that were in charge of a lot of the scorched earth policies and genocide in, in, in that country during the 80s, including recently the recently deposed president, Otto Perez Molina, the president that's currently still on trial, the ex-president that's currently still on trial, Guatemala the first head of state on, tri- on, on trial uh, in their home country for genocide. Uh, being in the Salvador's Mont, and then and a lot of the natu- most notorious kind of events, atrocities associated with the with the SOA are those that were committed in El Salvador. So another graduate was Roberto Davison, who was, um he, he's been implicated, he's an intellectual author of both the assassination of Oscar Romero, an uh, archbishop Oscar Romero, uh, recently canonized, and also the six Jesuits that were murdered in the Central American University in 1989. Also, people, the battalion, Alcatraz Battalion, was uh, in charge of, they were the ones that perpetrated the Mosote massacre, and also those that were connected to the rape and murder of the American church women in El Salvador. So, it's really kind of a, a situation where it's almost kind of like almost every single dark history in this 20th century, the second half of the 20th century. and that occurred in, in any country in Latin America, it's almost always those, those military men associated with that. History with specific incidents is almost always they can be traced back to having attended
0: the School of the Americas. And the School of the Americas Watch is an organization that was founded, I think, shortly after the rape and murder of the American nuns. I, Correct me it was, if I'm wrong. It was actually... Well, the founder is a, is a
1: priest by the name of Roy Bourgeois, Father Roy Bourgeois. And he actually had been a Catholic priest had been in Bolivia uh, working with some of the peasants. And he was actually arrested and tortured by the dictatorship of Rugo War So I believe it was 1984, 83 or 84, he began... Kind of protesting against the school of the Americans as soon as they moved back up to to Georgia from Panama, so he was doing his own kind of just personal protest. Been, been on the base, had been arrested, had spent time in prison already, and then after the 1989 massacre of the Jesuits, one year later is kind of basically the establishment of SOA Watch. One year later is the, the first vigil held around the same date in November, so. 1990 he and some some other people some other supporters did a uh, hunger strike a fast outside of the gates of Fort Benning. and that's just kind of how it started so it was just basically just this this fast organized by this one man and his and other people that supported him and then it just kind of grew from there into a, a yearly vigil attracted thousands of people and then you know an organization then sprung out of it which, you know, did work year round, mostly around closing the School of the Americas, but it since has evolved and expanded into just into opposing U.S.-led militarization in Latin America and just tried to change uh, the traditionally oppressive military-led relations that the U.S. has towards Latin America.
2: And what, what are the, the most important activities of SOA watch these days? Well, it still remains the vigil,
1: the, the November vigil, as you call it. It's held in Columbus, Georgia, where Fort Benning is located. Every November around the, around. The, it's not the exact same dates as the, as the Jesuit massacres, but around that time, that weekend, the weekend before Thanksgiving. So that's the single biggest, you know, what, this is what we're most well known for. And some people still kind of just associate us as just being just that vigil. Even though we, we we work you know year round on on, on issues and, and do a lot of other types of work besides organizing the vigil, but it's you know at its peak in, in in the late 2000s you know there was around 17,000 people that would attend, and it was just so it was a vigil protest outside of the gates, but as well as a conference and then people from all over the country would so just kind of bring their information of their organizations and what they were doing. So it just kind of became this kind of progressive meeting space. And of course, the, you know, there was a, a protest every year and, and, you know, the refrain of closed SOA and, and, and you know, the work being geared towards shutting down the school of the Americans. We also have a smaller event that's in Washington every spring. So spring days of action or spring lobby days. But, you know, might as well bring it up now. The most important but, you in know, in a, basically a, a very important development, a very new development, we've just decided to move the, the big mobilization, uh, the big annual mobilization from, from Columbus, Georgia, to a town near the border. We still haven't chosen the exact place yet. It's looking like either, probably either El Paso or, or Ogallis, El Paso, Texas or Nogales, Arizona, or Tucson, Arizona, possibly but it's just kind of a symbolism, symbol of, of the paradigm shift that we're kind of going through as far as expanding our focus for more explicitly because the focus has already been expanding and expanding and, you know, the things we talk about, the analysis, you know, militarization in general, and even the economic policies behind why we see this militarization, but um, this just kind of shows that we're, we're really just explicitly moving to to, to a broader... Uh, to, uh, topic, I mean, broad, broader subject matter. Um, most importantly, just, just in general, just opposing U.S. military training, wherever it may be, whether it be at the School of the Americas or some other military training institute, whether it be inside the USS or in, inside a Latin American country, and also connecting, you know, the militarization that that this training is a part of, to the root causes of migration, and also having a bigger focus on on mexico and central america given that that region which could be called mesoamerica as one is is currently undergoing the you know the most uh, acute crisis of human rights and 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 violence due to u.s military you know the u.s militarization is greatly contributing to that under the guise of the drug war
0: and uh something i i've watched your sort of announcement that you posted online about this shift and one thing that was brought up was that border patrol agents are now being trained at the school of the americas and that is sort of part of the reason that that you're making the shift as well because of the militarization of the border yeah i mean
1: i guess it's also a good time to bring up that you know the school of the americas has been renamed it used to be the u.s army school of the americas and then it's was called the western hemisphere institute for security cooperation, and it's under the purview of the Pentagon in general, as opposed to just the U.S. Army. So because, I mean, I think because of that, an expansion of the the authority of being under the Pentagon, they're increasingly using it to train also U.S. law enforcement agencies. And it's not a huge amount of people, but it's, it's still, it's an increasing amount. So for example, the U.S. Marshals, just other, other police agencies, FBI, um, have have had uh, some people go through there, and now the, the border patrol is also going through there. I think maybe some some of that is a relation because the border patrol also has a lot of its uh, training occurring in Georgia, another part of Georgia, and where a lot of its 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 personnel its agents are trained. But um, I think that's it's 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 a it's a telling development. But I think there's you know there's a difference of opinion on with internally as far as like what how much emphasis to put on the SOA connections. And I, I personally don't think that, you know, it, it might be hard to notice what the impact that the SOA is going to have on, on Border Patrol for a long time. But at the same time, even before its training at the SOA, Border Patrol has already proven itself to be a, a pretty out-of-control law enforcement agency. It's the biggest U.S. law enforcement agency, that, you know, providing more people, more uh, resources than any other Law enforcement agency in the U.S. and they really have very little accountability, very little oversight, and also just like that's the way what already that's way is is, is connected to, which is impunity, and and the border patrol is already uh, it's already there. We we were at this vigil with a lot of people that have been directly affected by border patrol violence, family members of those who have been killed or seriously harmed, seriously injured by by border patrol. Agents, and we think it's just you know a lot of it is just the SOA has has kind of multiplied and expanded, and you know this is one way. There's more, different people coming to it, but it's also the training is now more diffuse. It's in it's conducted in other places, but but a lot of the lineage traces back to the SOA, and we just kind of you know we, we describe it as now it's also it's also a symbol. It's also an idea. The SOA is a, is a representation of, of U.S. plastic towards Latin America, which is, you know, the application of military solutions to social and economic problems. So what does that end up doing? It just causes more repression, more oppression, especially when you're doing it, when you're conducting your training and arming and funding and politically propping up repressive governments and dictatorships, which continues to this day. So. You know, it's it's concerning that the the border patrol has started to also send people there, but it's only a few a few agents that that are starting to go. So it's 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 really just kind of like looking at the you know using the SOA as a prism to look through the entire spectrum of, of of U.S. military training and the damage that it does.
2: We wanted to ask you about your involvement. You grew up in El Salvador, and just how you became involved in SOA Watch. Why you you know, you've started to cover it, but why you think it's important, how you came to it, and, and how your work there is important mm-hmm. to you.
1: Well, I actually well, I was born in El Salvador, but I actually left when I was six months old. Oh. My family was right near the beginning of the Civil War. And due to threats to my father's life, we, we ended up leaving El Salvador shortly after I was born. We spent a little bit of time in Guatemala and then Colombia. And then when I was four years old, we moved to the U.S. So I've been in the U.S. since I was four. You know, my citizenship a, a long time ago. And yeah, but it is definitely personal to me, the, the issue of U.S. policy and, and the harmful effects it has had on Latin America. You know, on a personal level, I do think, you know, if it wasn't for U.S. support of the, the Salvadoran dictatorships and those repressive policies, then it, would have been, it wouldn't have been necessary for so many people to flee Uh, in the 1980s. And and, and unfortunately, we we still see that happening right now due to U.S. policy. So I'm, you know, very motivated to to, to do what I can. I feel very lucky to have have grown up in the U.S. with the possibilities of obtaining a a good education and and not really having gone, you know, to suffer personally a lot of the things that that a lot of my brothers and sisters from, from El Salvador have gone through, including coming to this country, you know, and being able to team my papers, my, my residency, my citizenship, I, went, I, you know, I was just kind of more, just kind of in the academic world. I started, it really wasn't that politicized until I started becoming more politicized in, in college. I just, you know, I just started studying international relations. I really wasn't even sure if that's what I really wanted to do, but I became very interested in it. So I majored in international relations. What, where did you go to school? From college, I went to University of Delaware. You know, so after that, I still, so still, just I was, I was writing about, was learning more about the history of El Salvador and the president at that time, and you know, writing papers on it, on El Salvador and other parts of Latin America, and then, you know, I went to, I went on to law school and grad school, at Boston University. Oh. Uh, so I studied law and I also studied, I got a master's in international relations as well, and that continued. So from grad school, I continued to write focused a lot on El Salvador, and then other parts of Central America mostly, Nicaragua, uh, Guatemala. And then, so I just kind of had this kind of base of knowledge, but I really wasn't involved in in quote-unquote activism. I started to meet some people while I was still there in school in Boston from CISBIS, this committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, and just kind of going to their events, but not really being too involved and really understand what it meant to be a quote-unquote activist. You know that, that was kind of it, and then I was just I, I then graduated school, and in 2007 I moved to Washington D.C. where I started practicing immigration law, and I think that also had a very formative kind of was a very formative experience. It is a formative experience for me. I'm still practicing a little bit, but I've, I've reduced my caseload. But the majority of my clients are from El Salvador. The, the vast majority are from Central America. So then you know I have some Honduran clients, some Guatemalan clients. And seeing how they continue, how people from, from the region continue to forcibly migrate to the US due to threats against their lives has been um, both a frustrating and and also a motivating experience for me. And I would say that, in particular, the, the way that I got became involved with us, the way Watch and just greater activism in general was after the coup d'etat in Honduras in 2009. At that time, I was writing for a blog. Uh, about Latin America. It's now defunct, but it was called uh, the Bo-Rev for Bolivarian Revolution, and it really focused mostly on. It was kind of like a media blog in the sense that a lot of it was critical of, of the U.S. media reporting on Latin America, and just kind of try to put a humor spin on it and kind of get out the real information about what was actually happening and not what the, the, the mainstream media was spinning here. So when that occurred, actually the main blogger was on sabbatical. He is on a vacation. So I just became kind of obsessed with the Honduran coup d'état, and the more I read, and the more time passed, you know, the months right after the coup, and, the, and and seeing the repression that followed the coup, and the U.S.'s role in maintaining the coup regime in power, it just really angered me. I really can't use another word. Besides that, I was very angry, and it and it made me very. I mean, I was also sad. I was also very. Frustrated that in 2009, that same similar things were happening still in Central America and Latin America as they had in the 80s. Um, can you
2: do? You, can you run through a little bit for people who may not know what what happened with the coup? Well, you know, actually, it was SOA
1: grads that led that coup in Honduras. Uh, the, the head of the joint chiefs of staff, his name was Romeo Vasquez Velasquez. He was a graduate of SOA. Another military man of the military air force by the last name, Fonse. I think his name is Javier Fonse. Basically, four out of the six top military commanders in Honduras were graduates of the SOA, and they all, you know, all of them supported the coup d'etat. So basically, uh, you know, there's a president elected a couple years before that, Manuel Zelaya. So I guess that was 2005. And he comes from kind of the traditional landed oligarchy ruling class but he just started moving more and more to the left in Honduras, and and trying to to you know doing you know just small things, raising the minimum wage, just trying to redistribute some land to some landless campesinos that have had their land stolen from them by other oligarchs. And then, but his 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 uh his greatest sin was basically trying to organize a a plebiscite that would have basically just polling the 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 electorate if they wanted to have a constituent assembly. So that was too much for, for the powers that be, the oligarchy in Honduras. In and if you see in the Wikileaks as well, it's too much for the U.S. But the U.S. had also a very strong fear that, because they had spoken about this, about Honduras saying that there was no more military bases going to be allowed on their, on their territory. So uh, for a lot of people, I mean, this is kind of, you know, it's debatable, but for a lot of people, I think we think that's kind of was the red line. The red line was had more to do with had a lot to do with that kind of impetus to try to rewrite the constitution and within the constitution have a clause that said that no, no military bases would be allowed. And the U.S. has this huge military base in Honduras, and since the coup in the last six years, they they opened up at least at least six other military bases in this country. So it's a strategic importance to them. And when I mean, Mosalai was 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 deposed, he was you know kidnapped at gunpoint by members of the military been taken to Costa Rica, famously in his pajamas still. But it was what was really telling. I, oh, I would have to add that the, the plane that took Zelaya from Honduras to Costa Rica stopped, made one stop, and it stopped in the U.S. military base in Honduras. So that's one of these clues of like advanced knowledge or of a green light by the U.S. or participation. I I, exactly. I, I mean, it's 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 one of those things that's just. You know, I would bet, I would bet all the money that I have, or whatever it is, I would bet that we'll find out more in the in the years and decades to come exactly what the U.S. world was. Uh, we know some, we know tidbits, but we have, you know, there's no smoking gun as far as their 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 planification and execution. But there's definitely a lot of circumstantial evidence. And you know, there's too much to really mention here. But I would say very importantly, not just because there's there's the coup and, and the execution of the coup, but we don't really know about it yet. There's a circumstantial evidence around it. What was very evident is the U.S. behavior after the coup. And after the coup d'etat, Department of Defense was silent. They didn't really say much, even though this is obviously an important thing for them and their uh, relationship with the military there. And the State Department, led at the time by Hillary Clinton, worked very hard to make sure that Manuel Zelaya did not come back to finish out his term as a president of Honduras, even though the rest of Latin America worked very hard to to try to make that happen, to try to restore him to the presidency through diplomatic and other means. And it was the U.S. basically that blocked, put up the roadblocks at every turn, talking out both sides of their mouth. We support democracy, we're against coup d'etats, but no, 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 Zelaya went too far, he can't come back. So basically, and also not calling for any type of sanctions or any type of, they are the only country that really supported, they gave credence and recognized the coup government and then recognized the elections that occurred a couple months later that kind of basically cemented the same people in power that had come to power after the coup d'etat who remain in power to this day, who are basically, who are, you know, some of the most vile officials in, in the world, officials in Latin America, just people thoroughly corrupt, uncaring for the population, you know, thoroughly corrupted, infiltrated by drug cartels, and, and responsible for thousands of human rights violations, and they just get away with it, and the U.S. keeps on propping them up politically and giving them money financially. And it's really just a, a, a shameful new chapter in, in U.S.-Latin American relations. And, and when this was occurring and seeing, like, the people being killed, because that's what happened. People went to the streets it was the biggest protest movement in the history of Honduras after the coup d'etali, which is people were just tired of all the repression and tired of the, the negligence by their by their governments and how big were the demonstrations?
2: People. I mean it's it's just not something that was very much in the news here, so I don't think people are, are aware of it. Right. That's I mean, I was very aware of it because I
1: was watching the news every single day, looking at the Spanish language news, reading it like obsessively, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, if you count everybody in the country. But even you know, in the big cities there was protests of hundreds of thousands every day for, for several months almost. I mean, wow. maybe a couple of days off, but then that was in Tegucigalpa and San Pedro Sula, the second biggest state the second biggest country. There was daily protests for months. Were, I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of people for like two or three months after the coup d'etat and and eventually the you know the coup just you know the the you know, and this was this protest movement was called the resistance. You know, not a very original name, but then they kind of made it a little bit more official sounding. There's like the National Resistance Front of Mortisanic, or named after Francisco Morisan, who was the most well-known liberator of Central America, kind of like Simon Bolivar of of Central America. And, you know, people were really, it just kind of awakened a lot of Hondurans. They continued to to organize and protest under uh, great threat, under threat of death, under constant harassment and, and death threats, and the occasional murder. It's really uh, a sad situation. A lot of people that are previously active are exile, and, and it continues. I mean, the coup is still all going six years later. And when I saw the beginnings of this, when people were first going up the street and getting killed and getting arrested and tortured and getting disappeared, uh, it wasn't on this massive level, as we've seen sometimes in the past, but it's targeted it's 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 well thought out it's planned it's as you can see there's a bigger you know execution it's kind of goes along with the history of honduras where they didn't have this huge protest movements or or armed insurgency but they always had these targeted killings and disappearances there and it's just continuation you know so so that's that's kind of like the panorama in the the region or at least in honduras And, and for me it was personally it was just a very i couldn't It it was just hard to to take that it was still happening, the same kind of policy. So I I started getting involved, organizing protests, organizing events with other people. You know, it wasn't like it was kind of a a loose network of people that we just got together and started doing this work and researching and and helping people, for example, do newscasts, make a documentary. And then SOA, which was the established organization that was most involved during that time. So that's how I got to know them. you know, I was involved with them for a couple of years and then there was a job opening three years ago and I applied and now I've been, I've been there since.
0: One thing that uh, you started to sort of touch on and that I've asked other Salvadorans who kind of grew up in America is like something I often struggle with is like, the I, I don't know how to really phrase it. it. It's almost like the duality of of being an American where it's like, you have these Salvadoran roots and yet the the country in which you grew up in America is like partly responsible or or very responsible for a lot of the, the horrible things that happened in, in our birth country. And I don't know, I, I struggle with that sometimes. And I'm just wondering, have you felt that? And, and is like your, uh, your desire to join the SOA watch, is that part of that, that frustration? Because you mentioned that you felt really angered by this stuff. And, and I feel the same way that, you know, having to watch the news and sort of feeling helpless in a way that, you know, these policies continue to, to happen in Central America.
1: I mean, most definitely my, my personal experience has um, has a lot to do with, with my work, my, my personal motivation and, and both... Um, as a family, also as, like, uh, you know, my family having to flee here, come come to the U.S., leave our country. I mean, I, I do have anger still, <laughs> to be candid, I still have anger for, like, regarding the fact that I didn't get to grow up in El Salvador. and have that separation from my culture and my family, my greater family, and I, I, I do have some resentment, a chip on my shoulder because of that. But, but more importantly, I, I don't really... But I don't, I don't really subscribe to... A, I mean, I, like I said, I I'm, I'm very lucky, very privileged to have been able to, to obtain an education and the opportunities and live the life that I have and not suffer materially. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up rich or anything like that, but it was... We didn't... We, never, we always had food on the table. And, and like I said, I was able to go to college and, and beyond. For me, it was also... Going up here, I didn't, I didn't really. To me, I also was not able, lucky, and able to be able to return to El Salvador because I had papers, because we had paperwork since we got here. and I came in as a resident alien, <laughs> but uh, so we were able to travel back every, almost every summer. So for me, being Latino, being Salvadoran, was really connected to my trips back because there wasn't a large Latino population here, and there wasn't a Salvadoran population whatsoever. Most Latinos here were, were Puerto Rican at that time. Now there's a large influx. There's been a large influx of Mexicans, but I think that people people here didn't really see the difference between whether you were Salvadoran or Mexican or Guatemalan or, or anything. What it didn't really matter to people who were Puerto Rican. So I think that that kind of also gave me kind of cultivated the sense of, of Pan Latin Americanism and caring not just for El Salvador but caring for, for the, you know every all the people there. I think that's part of the reason why Honduras who co- motivated me so much, because I didn't see the difference. I so, saw, you know, you see, you know, El Salvador and Honduras, I would also argue, be the two closest countries culturally that exist in Latin America. You know, it could be argued. I mean, so it could be Argentina or Uruguay. But anyway, they're, they're small countries, they're right next to each other. There's an incredible amount of, of historical and, and familial ties. There's people I meet all the time that are from Honduras, but they're one side of their families from El Salvador or vice versa. And I think that that really motivated me. But but also, you know, yes, as you were saying, like as, as a U.S. citizen, you know, there was the 1980s, there's these huge solidarity movements that arise in the U.S. fairly large that are in support of, of, of those being killed and disappeared and tortured in, in, in El Salvador, in Guatemala, and in Nicaragua for the most part. These are like the, the main flashpoints during the 80s. And it's kind of built on the sense it's mostly white. It's it's a lot of it's religious based Some people that are you know in the Catholic Church or other other religious organizations. And there's this kind of sense of solidarity. There's this kind of the sense of the statement of not in not in my name, not in our name, right? Do not use our tax dollars for this to to perpetuate human rights violations to 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 kind of make these things more horrible. And I think. The duality comes in, in there. I don't really think anybody, in my opinion, there's no person in the U.S., whether they're an immigrant or whether they were born here, whether they're a European descendant, whether they're black or whether they're Latino, Asian, whatever. You don't have to say we for the actions of the government. The government is one entity and the people are another. And I think it is incumbent upon the people to, to demand that the government actually represent them you know, there's a couple different levels, right? Like there's the moral level, then there's the taxpayer level, and then there's just also the personal level. And I think that on all three levels, you have to really develop and try to build solidarity if we're going to actually change things. It's, it's, a, it's a hard process to, to change the way that U.S. imperialism has, has developed. And obviously it's, it goes beyond Central America, it goes beyond Latin America, to the Middle East, to Africa, to other parts of the world. You know, I, I can't hide the truth. The U.S. has perpetrated some horrific crimes throughout its history to other people. It has inflicted horrific damage to other people. You know, Vietnam being one example, more recent example, ongoing Iraq, Syria. And there's, you know, that's where a lot of the power in this country really lies. You know, half of half of our taxpayer money, you know, the the... Half of our money goes to, to funding the Pentagon or war in one way or the other. And the people that make money, but that money doesn't just evaporate. That money goes into the coffers of the war profiteers and weapons makers. And they really have a lot of the power in this country. Um, the campaigns, the campaign campaign financing, through jobs, they're just flexing their power. And, and, and the Pentagon using scare tactics as, as a way to justify not only their being maintained, but also constantly expanding so it's a, it's a tall task in in you know the big picture of things and but I but I think what we have to like really focus in on as diaspora and as people in solidarity with the diaspora as people in solidarity with with the hugest amount of people the largest population of, of immigrants here Latin American immigrants we have to also see how we're connected it's it's a little bit easier to see them let's say from from Syrians that might have a smaller population here but well, there's so many Latin Americans here we have to ask constantly ask that question. Why are we here? Or why are they here? And it really goes back to U.S. policy. It might not be the one, it's not, I'm not saying it's the one and only reason, but it's I, I think it's the biggest reason for the presence of so many Latin Americans in this country. So I would say that that's the personal connection. That's the, that's the, the, the tangible material connection that I hope that we can build off of a little bit more because I don't think morally it's just a hard sell to get enough mm-hmm. people to pay attention and care. Financially, it's also a tough sell. Taxpayer money. Obviously people don't want taxpayer money being spent for you know horrific things, but at the same time, if you just look at the School of the Americas, it's $20 million a year. If you just look at, you know, policy towards Central America, it's X amount of million dollars a year. So it ends up being a drop in the bucket for US taxpayer or even Pentagon spending or Pentagon and State Department spending. So I think we really have to look at first of all, the diaspora leading this, because I don't think there's anybody that's going to be able to be as motivated as a diaspora, as people that are still connected to their home country, still connected to their culture, still connected to their families in these countries. And, And then just say, you know, we don't, you know, the one thing I can agree with, with Donald Trump is that I don't want any more people from El Salvador coming to the U.S., especially if it's it's, it's in, in the way that they're coming in, in and in fleeing for their lives either because of violence or because of economic violence and lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, which is the other side of U.S. policy. free trade agreements, neoliberal economic policies that have really not benefited anybody but the big corporations and the oligarchs in in, in these countries. And I think we really have to focus and, and really make a concerted effort to change things or, or at least try our our hardest that we can, you know, continue on that legacy. You know, I also see it as something that, you know, all those people that died in El Salvador, shouldn't have, they didn't die in vain. And it's upon me as as, 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 as a, a descendant of, of those people that came before me, that fought for their lives, that gave up their lives for freedom, for, for actual freedom, for the freedom of, of freedom from oppression, that their lives weren't lost in vain. So I'm very proud to to feel like I have some of those you know, kind of embers in my in my belly from from that tradition, and not just from the 80s, but from before that. This tradition of resistance, you know, to Spanish rule, to, to to colonial rule, to the oligarchs later, to the military dictatorships, to the, you know, uprising of 1932 where so many people were killed in El Salvador and beyond, and really just kind of update it and, and see how that we're we have to do this work from inside the u.s it's our responsibility is the diaspora to use our duality to use our dual citizenship at times or or dual residency at the very least to to push for the u.s to to improve on its on to to change it's not even improve it's 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 a software to change its to to dramatically change its 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 policies
0: yeah i i think you brought up some great points there. You know, the, the sort of the separation of the people and the government is something that my uncle in El Salvador talked about when we interviewed him for our film. And I think you also brought up a great point about like, that we get to grow up here in the U S and get a great education and, and do all these, you know, we have these unique opportunities, but the sort of cost of that is our childhood in El Salvador, you know, so there is that sort of duality to it. It Just overall, I think you make a great point about our need to speak up and, and tell the U S government, like what we approve of and, and what, where we want our tax dollars going. And, you know, the sort of, one would wish that the morality issue would be a stronger sort of, driving force. But yeah, I, I think we have to figure out ways to get more people involved and to to make the change that we would like to see. That's exactly. And like, I'm, yeah, we have we have to be that change. And I think it's time. And I think that, you know, there's a
1: historical aspect, but there's the present. And I think it really just goes back to the present. If, if this was a chapter, a dark chapter in, in the past, that'd be one thing, you know, and, and that would be there still would be a need for, for collective healing, We're, we've experienced so much collective trauma that it still needs to be addressed, that's still that's still being healed. The the, the wounds, the collective and personal and individual and familial wounds of the past are still open. And there's all this impunity that still reigns in El Salvador. There's a lot of problems that continue. And again, I'm not blaming the U.S. for everything. You know, there there's a lot of, there's people in El Salvador that are very much responsible for, for their own actions and actions of others that that have greatly caused death and destruction and pain to a large segment of the population. But, you know, we're here and the US is is has played a you know has supported those people to continue doing what they're doing. And if you look at El Salvador right now, you know, it's a higher homicide rate than during the war. And we have to ask we have to really, really think about why that is and really, really think hard and work hard to come up with solutions to change that because people continue to leave in droves. And right now, they're, they're not even being accepted into, you know, it's hard to come into the U.S. It's hard to obtain legal status. People are being detained. Asylum seekers are being detained in for-profit prisons when they enter the U.S. And the U.S. has such a huge role in perpetrating the violence. One, there's this, I mean, it's all connected. I really don't see, it's kind of strange because there's not, in a way, the warrants never stop because the the gangs that that then developed in the US were then, you know, people were then deported back to, to El Salvador and they're some of the biggest instigators of violence. But at the same time, they're just, I think we have to get past with the gangs. The gangs are a symptom, not the root of the problem. They're a symptom of the war, They're a result of the war, but they're also a result of the continuing separation of families, the continued lack of economic opportunities, the continued violence that comes from higher up than the gangs the continued impunity that comes up from higher up from the gangs. The gangs also, they also have a relationship with the drug cartels. Drug cartels have a relationship with the oligarchy or are part of the oligarchy. The drug cartels have a relationship with the government.
2: And, and it also, it just it's a militarized country. I mean, if, if you go into a hardware store on the main street, there's a man standing outside with a shotgun, right? There's There's a a level of violence that we just don't live with here in the U.S.
1: Correct. But the U.S. continues to to push forth that militarization and push forth only military solutions to these social problems. You're not going to kill or incarcerate all gang members. It's mm-hmm. impossible because more and more continue to bring up if You look at the structural issues. And, and like what I'm saying, I think another reason why Mexico is very important, even when we look at El Salvador and we look at uh, the rest of Central America, is because it's also fighting a quote unquote drug war that's being pushed by the US, but it doesn't have that level of the gangs. It's it's more just cartels. But the cartels and the government are almost one and the same. And why so if, if the cartels and the government are one and the same, why would the US continue to arm, train, and fund that government to fight a drug war when it's in cahoots with the same drug cartels that it's purportedly? Fighting, And I think when we see that happening in Mexico, it provides a little bit more clarity to what's ongoing, what's happening right now in Central America. Because we have to look, we have to work hard. I don't have all the answers or solutions where I don't really, I'm still trying to think about it. But I really challenge other people to look past the gangs and look to see where the problems are in our country and how we can prevent this this kind of legacy of of pain and, and family separation and violence and death and forced migration. And how we can put an end to that, because it's it's it, it, the buck doesn't stop at the cartels. And I really think that right now the u s. all it's doing is pouring more more fuel to the pouring gasoline on the fire. We're not going to 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 shoot our way out of this situation. And the u s. really needs to take a hard look at an honest, hard look at what it's doing. And I think it's incumbent upon us, not only diaspora, but everybody in El Salvador in the u s, in the region to really look hard. If we want to change this this current trajectory we're on,
2: and how would our listeners find more information about School of America's Watch? To uh, what what what, um, what steps do you recommend? Well, definitely
1: come up on our website. It's soaw.org. Uh, Again, soaw.org for so School of the Americas Watch, and you know, sign up for our, for. Our website sometimes is a little hard to navigate. We're, we're trying to get it revamped, but um, you know, you can sign up for our emails, and I think being on our email list provides a much better glimpse of what we do. You know, either an online action letter on, on Venezuela, or a something, or, or, or for right now we're supporting a letter in Congress for uh, regarding Honduras and, and, and corruption there. There's, um, you know, now we're moving t- to the border. It's a really exciting time. It's a big shift for us and and uh, you know and it's not just us we're trying to you know we're not trying to recreate the wheel we're just trying to to kind of link with organizations that are and groups and individuals are doing that are already doing important work that's related to our work and just kind of making those connections more explicit just, so for example just making the links with with immigrant rights organizations you know because it's you know, people have been up in arms about you know the quote unquote child migrant crisis since last year, and you know, you which know, is you know unaccompanied minors, also quote unquote, coming from from mostly Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and they're coming to the border and blah blah blah, and now they're in, and then they're being imprisoned in the family detention centers, and the Republicans are up in arms and they're saying it's because of the Dreamers, the Dream, the the benefits of Obama, and it's it's all really a lot of also a lot of political theater here, but racist political theater. But I think what what we have to do is what's incumbent upon us as SOE Watch and as other organizations traditionally have worked on foreign policy issues like CISPIS, who we continue to work with, like, you know, many other Witness for Peace, other organizations that have been doing this since the 80s. We have to really connect it to what's going on now. And I think that the most important aspects of that are, are or immigration, and how that affects us all, and a militarization, which is also occurring inside of the US because of the drug war. And what does a drug war mean? Let's put an end to, do we need this? Why what, does what a war on drugs? What's its purpose, and what is it actually doing? And I think when we start asking those questions, we're, we're, we're really kind of coming up on, I feel like the end of the drug war is on the horizon, but we have to hasten hasten that that to happen more quickly. So I think we Watch is really kind of making a shift to make it more broad, Still focusing on U.S. military training and U.S.
2: militarization, but but connecting it to more of these, these kind of tangible, more tangible issues. Great. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything you feel like we left out or didn't get to address that you'd like to address before we go? Yeah. And also anybody can email me if they're interested
1: in in, in any of the work. We've been doing a lot of work on IOTC Napa after the disappearance of the 43 students in Mexico, working with the Mexican Chicano groups here in the U.S., and doing and I do the lobby work which is which is very difficult at times to do and it's a thing it's a very uh, I, I like to joke it's a very masochistic task but it's also necessary it's one of the few things that we can do to try to affect foreign policy but you know educate you know more importantly we have to educate ourselves and educate others and and you know anybody's also free to contact me with any questions my email is arturo a r t u r o at so dot org
2: Great. We'll also include that in our and show we'll, uh, notes so
0: people have it. All okay. right. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us. It's always great to connect with uh, fellow Salvadorans and hear their perspectives on, on, on all of this stuff. So I personally appreciate it. And I know John and I both appreciate it so, because um, it helps get the word out there about what's going on. Well, I appreciate your work too. Um,
1: you know, I look forward to that. Uh, seeing the documentary and listening to some more of the podcasts. So great, great, great job. And let's keep in contact. All right.
2: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Arturo.
1: Thank you.